We're here to hear from Carlos about the history of solid mechanics in, in the university here. Um, when I was asked to introduce Carlos, my initial thought was that really he didn't need any introduction. He was so well known to people here in the department and also to people at Rolls-Royce. But then, of course, I realised that actually I think about three generations of research students have gone through the group since Carlos retired. So there will be certainly a number of people in the room who, who haven't had direct contact with him. Um, Carlos, of course, was born and educated in Madrid, uh, came to the UK in 1960, worked for Walker Sidley and Babcock and Wilcox uh, on a number of problems, including pressure vessel uh, design, took up a lectureship in Sheffield in 1964, uh, and moved down here to Oxford in, in 1970, where he was a university lecturer and reader, and uh, finally professor of engineering science. Um, one of the significant things, I suppose, that Carlos did while he was here was really get the solid mechanics uh, people uh, sort of moving as one together and it effectively sort of founded the solid mechanics group, which has today grown to uh, 10 academic members of staff, and also established the collaboration with Rolls-Royce, who are sponsors of today's lecture. Uh, he started... Uh, in collaboration with Rolls-Royce, the University Technology Centre for Solid Mechanics in 1990. It was the first UTC to be started, and uh, uh, there are now, I think, 29 worldwide. So it's proved to be a very successful model for uh, collaborations between the university and industry. Um, Carlos has many interests. He's going to talk about some of his solid mechanics ones, but he has other interests outside of that. He has a, uh, a 1946 Riley. Uh, which he keeps on the road himself. Um, also on his retirement he got into clock making and he has a, a little workshop at home and uh, no doubt makes uh, clocks and things there. Uh, if you talk to one or two of our technicians who are here today they'll tell you about the occasion where they swear he was trying to make a, a gear with a non-integral number of teeth. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure that's apocryphal, Carlos. <laughs> or at least it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce Professor Carlos Well, thank you very much. Um, it is an extremely daunting uh, occasion for me, and um, I hope that you won't be too badly disappointed. I'll start by telling you that many years ago, when I was a uh, young engineer employed by Barcock and Wilcox, I was representing the firm at one of the British Standards Institute meetings, and I was trying to explain how we set about designing pressure vessels using strains and stresses and uh, safety analysis and so on. When I was interrupted by a real engineer, English, who said, gentlemen, I don't care about stresses and strains. These ideas may be all right for an obscure Mediterranean country. <laughs> They're definitely not for me. What I care about what we care about in Great Britain is strength. And he shouted like that, uh, waving his fist around. Now, I was totally dismayed by that attitude. And yet, the title of this lecture, if I can master this uh, technique, is designing for strength. Just what that man wanted. And there is a reason, namely, 
because as we go through all the um, philosophy of all the uh, engineering professors here, or people who have been doing research in solid mechanics, their attitude has always been the same. We are trying to work so as to improve the ways of establishing the structural integrity or strength of engineering products. Now, solid mechanics is the study of the behavior of uh, deformable solids under mechanical and thermal loads. We all know that. And this includes the calculation of stresses, strains, the assessment of their strength, the description and prediction of their mode of failure under increasing loads, and so on. A knowledge of solid mechanics is fundamental in the scientific education of engineering students. And this was recognized by the first professor of engineering science, Jenkins, in his inaugural lecture in 1908. Now, he understood engineering as the art of directing the great source of power in nature for the use and convenience of man, and considered that the purpose of the engineering course in Oxford was to provide the scientific basis for an engineering career that, like his own, combined science and engineering practice. Like many other Oxford uh, academics, although Jenkins was primarily interested in solid mechanics, he was very much of a polymath. He was a splendid uh, draftsman, and as an example, we have the illustrations that he prepared for the British Zoological Society in an Antarctic survey. This was all done by him. You can see his drawing instruments, by the way, uh, just outside in uh, the lobby. He was an authority on astrolabes, and he wrote one of the first um, books on the subject, early books on the subject, explaining how to use the astrolabes. And his work spanned soil mechanics, thermal properties of materials, vibrations, electrical engineering, all sorts of subjects of that type. He brought this polyphasetic attitude to uh, the design of uh, devices that he used in uh, his laboratory. For example, he designed one of the earliest electromagnetic high-frequency testing machines for fatigue. In this machine, the specimen is here, preloaded, and it is subjected to a vibration exerted by an electromagnet. And the electromagnet is excited by an oscillating circuit, which is shown in this uh, uh, diagram. In fact, this doesn't differ significantly from uh, the Amsler Vibrofore testing machine that was later on used throughout Europe and throughout the world. But that was in 1920. But where... Um, he came into his own was in the techniques that he used to interpret the experimental results and to extract data from the machine. What he did was to measure the amplitude by looking at a gold-plated spot in the specimen. This oscillated and produced a line of a given length, given the amplitude. The frequency, well, the frequency could vary between the lowest acoustic frequency, 16 uh, hertz, to the highest C, that is about 4 kilohertz, 
going through the range that he normally used, about 2 kilohertz. Not very easy to measure this frequency. What he did was to uh, get the machine to vibrate and to put next to the machine a tuning fork, plus a pitch-perfect technician. <laughs> now, this worked for a while until the pitch-perfect technician either got a cold or whatever it was, uh, and he had to design an oscilloscope, sorry, an stroboscope for this purpose. But the pitch-perfect technician was still a feature of his laboratory. In fact, what he did was to re he realized the fact that uh, the frequency was quite an important factor in the fatigue life, and he wanted to reach higher frequencies. Well, to reach higher frequencies, he did something which was incredibly ingenious. Oxford ingenuity again. This is his testing machine. The specimen is this cantilever, this one. This is held against the wall of this large uh, lump of metal. Air is blown off through here. There is a chamber, chamber F. The size of the chamber and the gap between this block and the specimen could be varied by rotating the block. And therefore, what you did was to let air escape just as it does in the reed of a, an oboe or a musical instrument. Again, the thing vibrated. Here was the pitch-perfect technician listening to the music of the fatigue, and there it was. He went a step farther. He modified the machine to make it even simpler. In this particular case, this particular example, the specimen is here. This can be either cantilever or held on both sides, preloaded to anybody you liked. And you were blowing air through these two tubes, and again, varying the gap between the two pads, you were able to vary the force, vary the frequency, vary the pitch. He managed to obtain fatigue data at 20 kilohertz, which was quite remarkable in 1920. And from his work, he was able to show that the design criterion that prevailed for most of the applications he had in mind was just the endurance limit. Now, Jenkin developed also a very simple mechanistic model to explain his observations. He assumed that in a polycrystalline material, the shearing stresses in the cleavage planes uh, differ depending on the orientation of the crystal. Well, all undergrads know this now, but that was 1920. And that slipping um, each crystal, in each crystal, is resisted first by addition and once it occurs by friction. So, here is the model he prepared. Here is the model of a crystal. You apply the load between A and B. A is fixed to the rod, B can be moved along the rod, it's just guided by the rod without friction, but it is tied up to this strap C through the spring. What happens? You apply the load. At first, it is all elastic, and the crystal deforms elastically. Then, when the load reaches a certain value, the strap C 
slips. And then it carries on slipping through friction. So you have yield point explained and plastic deformation in the crystal explained. You then have three of these elements put together with different, perhaps different uh, clamping forces or different preloads. And then from this, you can just combine the three uh, crystals, the mode of behavior, to produce hysteresis loops. Stress, strain, eventually you load, yield, and then as you start moving, you go on like this. The hysteresis loop. Now, that was done in 1920. In 1970, I published uh, a book with uh, Professor Königsberger, and I was very proud of having invented a wonderful model. And fortunately, I hadn't read Jenkins, because <laughs> I wouldn't have been so proud otherwise. What, uh, this model, in fact, can be very useful, because it can be used to uh, explain Mason's predictive uh, fatigue life uh, uh, equations. It can also be used to predict quite a number of modes of failure. In fact, uh, Jenkins was probably the first who uh, um, developed the idea of designing against failure. If these are the various modes of failure that you can observe in a material, you know that uh, you can have failure due to very excessive loading, excessive deformation, that this can be stable if it is elastic, elastoplastic, or plastic if you have a turbine blade and uh, the tip uh, expands to touch the shroud, nobody would be particularly happy. The whole thing is stable, but it deforms too much. So what you have to do is to ensure that the elastic stresses, elastic strains, remain below a certain value. That would be the design criteria. If you are designing uh, something under compression, designing this under compression, then you know that uh, the compressive stress uh, is related to the slenderness of the whole thing, buckling, and then again, you have exactly the same idea. The stress, then, is the figure of merit that enables you to characterize the strength of the component, designing for strength. Excessive deformation can lead to incremental collapse as the whole thing ratchets into a, a larger uh, deformation, you can have fracture under static loading, brittle fracture, lustrous brittle fracture, creep fracture, and so on. So by identifying the various modes of failure, you can then ensure that you can design against them. So Jenkins was not only an innovator in many things, but he also set the pattern for the Oxford approach, or what I hope, has remained the Oxford approach for a century. Now, Jenkins was succeeded by Professor Southwell in 1930. Southwell was uh, first and foremost an applied mathematician, unlike Jenkins, who had uh, significant uh, experience in engineering. His first interest was structural stability, and his work on the R101 led him to believe in the future of airships. 
it is not surprising that somebody who actually believes in the future of airships uh, is really ideal for employment in Oxford University. <laughs> I will explain this later on. But, you know. um, but in Oxford, his main contribution was the development of one of the most effective computational techniques for the solution of the differential equations governing the elastic behavior of solids. That was the relaxation method. Before computers had ever been dreamt, this enabled teams of undergraduates and graduates working under Southwell during World War II to uh, stress analyze all sorts of uh, um, items, guns, shells, rotating discs, um, propellers, you name it, this group of people were pivoting away with their calculating machines, determining the stresses, calculating the stress concentrations, and therefore providing information of uh, incredibly high value to uh, all engineers outside the university. This, in fact, this technique continued for a long time, I would say, until the advent of modern uh, computers. Even in the 60s, it was still used in industry. In fact, it was used in industry as late as 1963. And uh, uh, I remember again that uh, uh, in 1963 or 64, an academic visitor from uh, one of the Welsh universities came to visit uh, Babcock and Wilcox uh, to try and sell a new idea which he used to call finite element analysis. Both my colleague, uh, Mike Bickell, and myself didn't really think there was very much uh, future in that. <laughs> that is why later on I was employed by Oxford University. <laughs> because my, uh, well, my prophetic uh, ability was quite clearly not one of my main assets, just like Southwell. Now, besides his work on elasticity, uh, Southwell was also responsible for setting up the first impact testing laboratory in Oxford. At that time, uh, many people were doing a test, the ISO test, in which a, a cylindrical specimen was held in a cantilever position. The specimen had a notched round and it was hit by a pendulum um, in such a way that uh, the specimen uh, broke, and by measuring the amount of energy that went into uh, fracturing the specimen, it was possible to uh, say something about the toughness of the material. But these tests were very uh, erratic. The results didn't really uh, tie up. There was a serious lack of repeatability, depending on the laboratory. And Southwell and his collaborators realized the fact that uh, a new machine had to be designed that uh, would uh, be exempted from all the vibrations, friction, and so on, that uh, the existing, the old machines, and that caused the lack of repeatability of results. So, as I say, being a mathematician rather than an engineer, he designed this machine. This is the roof of the laboratory. This is a pendulum, which is held on uh, four K 
cables it's fixed to the wall here here is an anvil also a pendulum again held on four cables and what you do is that you put your specimen here and you evacuate the lab and at a given point you let this go hits the pendulum the two things move and you measure their position in a very clever Oxford manner. You do it by tying a little string to this pendulum and getting this string to go through a, a little hole with two rubber pads. So the string can just go past but doesn't go back. So all you do is when you do the test, the string pulls, you measure the length of the string, there you are, that's the position of the pendulum. <laughs> By then, the pitch perfect uh, technician had gone. <laughs> now, this testing machine, in fact, eliminated all known errors and gave repeatable results every time. Unfortunately, the ISO test, a little bit like a relaxation, uh, became redundant uh, and no further work was done. But Southwell succeeded in getting uh, this impact testing started here in Oxford. With his retirement in 1942, <coughs> solid mechanics in Oxford virtually ground to a halt. And it was only when uh, um, Dennis Campbell, who was appointed to a lectureship in 1947, managed to build up his laboratory that new uh, publications um, came out of uh, this department. That was in the 50s. Now, Campbell's research into the mechanical properties of materials at high rates of strain was of vital importance not just to the military uh, industries, but also to the understanding of the mechanical behavior of materials. So it had tremendous academic value. The first impact testing apparatus that he used, or one of the first that he used, sorry, let's go to this, was this one. It was a very simple device. The specimen was a compression disc in here, and it was... Uh, fixed between two uh, bars, input bar, output bar. A weight was dropped on the input bar. A compression wave traveled, was reflected there. And by putting strain gauges on the input and output bars, it was possible to measure the stress uh, history of the bars and for this to deduce the force applied to the specimen and uh, the deformation of the specimen. Now, to give an idea of um, what was obtained from, the specimen, from uh, these operators, uh, if you uh, do a test in a conventional tensile testing machine, your strain rate may go up to perhaps 1 or 10 per second. That is, as we used to say in the olden days, inches per inch per second. Now you can say it in a different way, but per second. Well, uh, with these impact operators, you can go about... 100 to 1,000 times faster, up to 1,000 per second minus one, giving a completely different picture of what uh, 
happens to the material, how the dislocations move and how the material responds. Um, Campbell uh, continued his work with uh, John Harding, who is just sitting there, therefore I only say nice things about him. Um, and uh, um, Harding and Campbell developed uh, other machines to do uh, tests in tension, in torsion, in shear, reversed tension compression, and so on. And after Campbell's untimely death in 1979, John continued the good work with the assistance of people like uh, uh, Duncan McDougall, who is also there, uh, Daniel Ruiz, who is also there, uh, Peter Rocket, who is not here, and many others. Now, typical of the research that uh, they were uh, doing is this sort of thing. This is uh, a test in shear. Here is the specimen. It's a flat plate with notches like that. Here is the input bar. It hits the specimen in the middle, and the specimen is supported at the edges on this tube. Here is the, uh, uh, the projectile fired against the bar at something like uh, 15 meters per second. Again, a compression uh, wave travels, produces the loading of the specimen, and is resisted by the output bar, also producing a compression wave. And strain gauges, amplifiers, recorded in digital data recorders to uh, uh, cathode ray oscilloscopes uh, and to a uh, PC enable you to obtain the traces of uh, stress versus strain at uh, any rate. But if you only did this, you would only know half the story because, of course, you would only know about the global response of the specimen. In practice, when you look at the stresses in the specimen, this is the center line of the specimen. Uh, this is the center where it is loaded, and this is where it is supported, here and here. You can see that if you plot the um, locus of uh, um, equal shear stresses, the fringes in a photoelastic test, you get very high stress concentrations at these points. And therefore, you don't have what you would ideally like to have, which is a uniform shear stress in the region that is about to fail. Now, what you do then is you do an experiment using a photoelastic um, uh, material you see what these fringes are, and you then, using finite element analysis, which we now know exists and works quite well, <laughs> uh, we can model the whole thing mathematically. Of course, to use the mathematical modeling, we have to know the mechanical properties of the material, which we don't know. So we have to start iterating. We do a model, we get mechanical properties, change mechanical properties, change the model, until we get something that resembles the sort of thing that we see experimentally. 
So experimental techniques combined with numerical analysis and quite demanding uh, experiments since the more we want to know about the materials, well, the more uh, information we want from these uh, experiments. Now, until the early 70s, most of the impact work in this laboratory was uh, based on uh, the ideas of uh, Campbell and Harding, that is to obtain a constitutive equation for the mechanical behavior of materials. In the 80s, um, I joined uh, John and expanded the range of interest to cover the behavior of aero engine components under impact. Uh, and to this uh, end, with the help of people like uh, Richard Coran, Graham Hildon, Hillstone, Richard Duffin, and many others, we designed and built a number of compressed gas guns of varying calibers. This is one of them. Uh, this was a gas gun that, in fact, was previously used by Martin Oldfield as a shock wave tube. We never bought anything. We always made do with uh, whatever, with the crumbs from Richmond tables. <laughs> so in this particular case, the crumb was a five meter long, 70 millimeter bore, a gigantic tube with a thickness of about so much, uh, which was designed to uh, uh, fire a projectile of up to 200 uh, grams at velocities of up to 600 meters per second against a target, which was this one. Uh, I note that uh, we have in our midst one of uh, uh, the existing administrator. The previous administrator nearly had a fit when uh, he realized the fact that this projectile had once gone straight through here and had produced the bump in here, it was quite significant. And he said, health and safety would not allow you to carry on using this. Well, we did. <laughs> <laughs> now, at that time, we also did uh, quite a lot of research. Uh, perhaps, uh, if there is time, I will show you a little tape showing some of the research that we did. But we also did quite a lot of research for fun. Now, imagine that uh, you are in uh, your, the comfort of your pressurized Ryanair aeroplane. Now, the shape of the aeroplane is slightly strange, but you know what Ryanair is like. They want to uh, put as many seats as possible. So this is a pressurized vessel, essentially. It's an aeroplane, pressurized. And imagine that you are flying over the Atlantic when somebody fires a projectile against the plane. And this is what happens, right? What's happened is that uh, from the hole that the projectile has left, cracks have emanated, and under the effect of the tension of the wall of the aeroplane, they have just propagated and caused a complete uh, burst of the whole thing. Now, if you have less strain, if you have smaller aeroplane, <laughs> then all you have is nothing. 
just the air escapes. There is no crack propagation. Well, you cannot model this in the laboratory very well uh, because you can tell uh, the, the British Aerospace that uh, if they make their uh, aeroplane out of latex, these are the loads that I mustn't uh, uh, reach. But latex, of course, is not a very useful uh, material. So what you do is to have a specimen with a hard material, which is this one, it's a plate. You apply load at this point and at this point. So the whole thing is stressed. And you apply the load by means of two pneumatic cylinders. So there's quite a lot of uh, pressurized gas driving this uh, crack, should it arise, and plenty of energy available. And then here, you put a starter notch, and at a given point, you fire a wedge against this point, so you open up the notch. This is the machine. Here is the specimen. There. Here is the wedge. wedge. And here is a projectile that hits the wedge at this point. Depending on the stress that we have on the plate, we either have a propagating crack or an arrested crack. And this we can actually tell our friends in the aviation industry. We can say, look, if you are using this material, be careful, don't exceed that sort of stress. Well, so much for uh, this particular type of work. Fracture and fatigue has always, always been uh, quite an important uh, feature of uh, the of solid mechanics here, starting from Jenkins. And um, more recently, most of the work on the fatigue has been related, or significant amount of work on fatigue, rather, has been related to the effect of uh, fretting, fatigue emanating from uh, cracks produced by the damage between two surfaces in contact. All this uh, uh, fatigue is uh, very often uh, uh, using the stress intensity factor to characterize the severity of uh, a crack. Stress intensity factor can be determined experimentally, um, and this was done when, with John Morton, who uh, I don't see here, he was going to come, analytically or using numerical methods, but it is never a simple problem. Now, David Hills and David Noel developed a very powerful method in which the crack is modeled as a continuous distribution of displacement discontinuities or dislocations. And this enabled the two Davids and their collaborators to calculate stress intensity factor for cracks in the presence of very steep stress gradients, the sort of gradients that arise in two bodies in contact. And thus to study crack growth from rubbing surfaces, that is, fretting fatigue. The first work that was done in this uh, uh, field was in fact by John O'Connor in uh, the 60s, who used an Amstrad vibrofore and used specimens in which the fretting was caused by pressing two pads against the specimen. Uh, this work um, was 
quite active until uh, the 70s. And uh, it was revived in one form or another, uh, as we shall see later. But um, David Hales has been using a considerably more sophisticated apparatus than the one used by O'Connor, which, of course, again, yields considerably more uh, valuable results in these operators, fretting uh, the fatigue is produced by these two uh, jaws, two, uh, uh, the, the two uh, main loading um, systems in the, in the uh, electrohydraulic machine. And uh, there are two contact pads which a fretting movement is imposed with the contact loads here. So you can vary the contact force, you can vary the contact uh, displacement, you can also vary the temperature by putting uh, an environmental furnace around it, and you can generate quite a lot of information about the fretting uh, uh, fatigue. In fact, this uh, is being used to determine the strength of uh, splines in spline connections. You can also use a similar approach to study the fatigue in dovetail blades. In uh, an aero engine, the uh, fan blades are dovetailed, this sort of joint, onto a disc. As the disc spins, it is subjected to a load normal to the blade, was the blade is tending to pull away from the disc. We reproduce this condition in a specimen in which we have three pairs of, so we call them blades, loaded, and a sheet which represents the rotating disc also loaded in this direction. And we apply this load in a uh, a biaxial machine which uh, I would like to say is quite a clever machine. <laughs> it's definitely cleverer than the one used in Cambridge. <laughs> it only uses two actuators, one and two. The one in Cambridge and uh, also in Farnborough uses four actuators. It is considerably more expensive, and it is not as good. <laughs> the whole machine is modeled as a system of masses and uh, springs, mass and stiffness. And it is designed in such a way that when it is uh, oscillating at the frequency required, it is more or less uh, vibrating in, in, well, uh, at a point where a very small force can actually you be used to displace the whole system. It is just the first harmonic of the machine. So by doing this, uh, the forces that are applied to the specimen, which is here, are perfectly balanced uh, in equilibrium, and the center of the specimen does not move at all. The machine is this one. Um, the early one was built uh, thanks to uh, the well, devotion to his duty of uh, Phil Webb, who spent many happy hours in the laboratory 
until the whole thing worked. Uh, I think he slept quite a lot of the time. <laughs> because this was not an exciting research. And uh, it was really shown to give very good results. And now other machines have been developed from this one in which we, we uh, introduce not just this uh, uh, main loads, but also additional vibration, vibration on, the, on the blades. Again, to uh, get the maximum information from uh, these experiments, you try to uh, uh, find out not just the global behavior, which is given to you by the machine. You uh, put things like a uh, uh, moiré interferometry here with uh, uh, 1,200 lines per millimeter, giving you a series of contours, lines of equal displacement, spaced at 0.4 micrometers intervals. So if you home into a point such as say this one, you say this one is fixed. The next one has displaced 0.4 micrometers with respect to this one, the next one 0.8, the next one 1.2, and so on. So you get steps, 0.4 micrometers, and therefore you get a lot of information about the deformation of the whole thing, and in particular about the relative displacement between the blade and the disc, and about the relative displacement between one point and another one, which would be originally in contact. So you get an idea of the slip between the two. You also get an idea of the um, compression force of the stress. And you can get, as I say, quite a bit of information that can then be processed using finite element methods or, if you have cracks, using um, the dislocation approach to uh, uh, get more confidence in the experiment and in the mathematical model. Using uh, this type of machine, you get results such as this one. This is uh, a micrograph of a titanium alloy. This is the disk. This is the surface that is in contact with the blade. And you can see that there is a tremendous amount of damage that has occurred in here. You have cracks growing in all sorts of directions. And in particular, you have a crack that has started there, that has continued in between the various crystals and gone as far as here. So uh, that shows the propagation of the crack in the disk. If you do the test at 600 degrees, when there is quite a lot of uh, creep in the titanium alloy, you find that the damage is considerably less. There is a big crack has started bifurcated, going on like that. Quite a different type of uh, failure. It is one in which creep, rather than uh, fatigue, has uh, been uh, the prime factor. Well, we have done research here not only on uh, metals, but also on polymers. There has also been quite a lot of work on plasticity and viscoplasticity, although less uh, than in the other two activities I have mentioned before. 
the mechanical behavior of polymers uh, has been studied by Macram since the 1960s. Uh, his book has become a standard textbook and uh, was revised by uh, Paul Buckley, who has continued uh, with Macram's work. Um, and with the appointment of Fionn Dunn in 1990, 1992, I think, um, more work on plasticity and viscoplasticity has also uh, started. And now this is yet another thriving branch of research. So we get on to what happens in the 21st century. Well, in 1990, we have a boost to the solid mechanics activities in the department by the foundation of the UTC in solid mechanics. I'm very glad to see that uh, John Coplin is with us today. John Coplin was uh, uh, instrumental uh, in setting up these first um, UTCs. And it is thanks to uh, his vision, as I mentioned to you before, my prophetic uh, power is very poor. So, uh, it is not that I thought at the time always never prosper. It's just that uh, um, I was, to a very large extent, driven by John Copeland into uh, uh, doing this uh, work. So, um, thanks to the UTC, Rolls-Royce took a great interest in the work that we were doing. and has been supported it ever since. We now have uh, Nick Petrinich is going on with the work on impact. David Hills, David Noel, Alex Korsansky are doing quite a lot on fatigue, fretting, residual stresses, fracture mechanics in general. Fionn Dunn working on plasticity, Paul Buckley on polymers, um, Alan Cox, who has just joined the department, is also doing work on thermal barrier coatings. And all this work, I have been trying to find unifying characteristics. What I feel it has is, first of all, that there is always a high level of collaboration. We may not see eye to eye all the time with our colleagues, but the level of collaboration is considerably greater than in other departments. And that's a very healthy situation. The second thing that uh, um, all the work of solid mechanics entails experimental work requiring design and construction of very elaborate rigs and the development of advanced instrumentation and testing techniques, as we have seen. There is a mathematical analysis that goes side by side with experimental work. And there is another feature, which is the industry-driven motivation, which is, I believe, particularly important here. Now, I'm going to conclude with uh, two um, things. One is a little video. It's very, very short. <coughs> and it is not my voice. So you will definitely benefit from uh, listening. Research into buckling of thin wall shells and impact constitutes an important activity in the Department of Engineering Science at Oxford. Impact problems arise in aero engines. The ingestion of a bird or the collision of a blade against a foreign object 
may cause severe damage to the blade and loss of power. Blades may also break off their root. In that unlikely but still possible event, they must be contained within the casing. To satisfy the requirements of the civil aviation authorities, tests in which a blade is detached from its root fixing take place at the manufacturers. The casing in this test contains the blade absorbing all its kinetic energy. The initial vibration of the casing and its subsequent plastic deformation is revealed by filming at a speed of 10,000 frames per second. Higher speeds of up to 250,000 frames per second are also possible and indeed necessary to study the moment of impact. In this oblique view, the deformation of the casing is clearly shown. While such tests are essential to ensure the safe operation of the engine, they are too time-consuming and expensive to be used as the sole means of obtaining design data. Simpler tests, devised to highlight the main features of the problem, are needed. In this simple test, a lead model of a fan running at 1,200 revolutions per minute is hit by a bird modelled by a small lump of modelling clay. The bird is sliced in two after damaging the leading edge of one blade. The blade, immediately behind the one that was hit, receives a central blow from one of the two halves and oscillates with large amplitudes before centrifugal forces return it to its original position. The filming speed was 10,000 frames per second. Much can be learned from this test. In particular, from the deformed shape revealed by moiré shadow interferometry, it is possible to calculate the amount of energy absorbed and the location of the damage. The impact casing itself is best studied using compressed gas guns, such as the one shown in this slide that fires a projectile of up to 125 grams at speeds approaching 300 meters per second. Curves giving the casing thickness required to contain a given energy are obtained experimentally and supported by analysis. At even higher speeds, up to 1,400 meters per second, rifles are used. This photograph shows the penetration of a 3-gram bullet into a 25-millimeter thick steel plate. A 12-millimeter plate is perforated. Thank you. Well, you've seen something about uh, the test that we are doing, about the approach that we are following, and I will finally conclude with a quotation from Jenkin. The quotation is the following. While urging the importance of research in the fundamental theories of stress and fundamental properties of materials, I wish to lay special stress on the nature of the researches required. Engineers are intensely practical men, and their practice has generally been ahead of theory. The difficulties that have now been, sorry, the difficulties they have met have been dealt with often with the greatest ingenuity and skill as special problems. They have seldom had time or opportunity to solve the general problems, and as a result, they are used to making their experiments and trials as close a copy of the real thing as possible. The results obtained in this way, in this way while they are applicable 
to the particular problem are of little general use. They depend on many factors. The researches I am now advocating must be of a diametrically opposite description. They must be absolutely general, and the results must depend on one factor only at a time, so that general laws may be established, which will be applicable to all special problems. I think that this quotation is as relevant today as it was in 1924, when it was made. In conclusion, I think that the Solid Mechanics Group has always made a significant contribution to the university, financial and otherwise, and has been partly responsible for the prestige of the Department of Engineering Science. It is well placed to continue playing a vital role in future, as it has done in the past. Floreat Solid Mechanics. Well, thank you, Carlos. Well, of course, uh, we're all here to hear about uh, the history of uh, our subject, uh, subsubject, if you like, within the department, and that's been very intriguing. But of course, many of us also here for a secondary reason. Because we want to make sure that you portray fairly our little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you only took one minute twenty-five seconds over my bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, although the, the department's a hundred years old, as Carlos has said, there was a really a renaissance when Campbell came in, in, in the fifties, late forties. Um, uh, so really, you know, solid mechanics in its present form has been going for sixty years, and it. Carlos has been contributing to those, uh, to that work, for 30 of them, for half of it. And of course, it's no coincidence that he's had a very major effect on uh, our research in so many ways, uh, which is very enduring. You've heard about uh, the individual people he's trained, and not, not only have I survived, but there have been other survivors too, not necessarily unscathed, but uh, Simon and Sarah there have been lectured too, but also we've got Richard Corran there and Steve Williams, who also been trained by him. So um, Carlos has had a lasting impression and uh, this idea of, uh, what did he call it, the Oxford approach, uh, I suppose it's in two, two, two ways. First, first, there's the way that uh, we've learned to think about problems, both uh, you know, this very fundamental and basic way and also because of his innovation uh, in devising uh, very clever experiments that it's a very hard act to follow. Um, Several of the people whom he's trained have gone on to work for Rolls-Royce, um, and it's a pleasure for us to go back and work with them, so that it sort of keeps a, a real continuity in the, in the spirit of the work. Um, I'm here now, of course, to thank Carlos, but I can hardly also fail to thank uh, Rolls-Royce, not just for the relatively trivial thing of sponsoring tonight's event, but for the years uh, of support that uh, the company has given us since uh, Carlos inaugurated the the UTC. So um, I conclude by thanking Rolls-Royce, but more particularly uh, for thanking Carlos for uh, the inspiration, I suppose it's a trendy word, but it is an inspiration that he's given us in the kind of research work that we do in the solid mechanics in this department, um, and then just specifically for, for tonight's lecture.